don't know about you, but I've got a long list of ideas that I want to work on and more than I've got time on this planet left to accomplish. So the quicker somebody can tell me like that's a dumb idea uh, and why, I can move on to the next thing, which might not be a dumb idea. Are you chock full of big ideas? Then this episode of the I Make a Living podcast is made for you. Today, I'm talking to the ultimate idea guy and serial tech entrepreneur, Sanjay Parikh. Sanjay is the founder of Mirage Data, a startup focused on protecting data while maintaining usability. Sanjay previously co-founded Prototype Prime, a hardware and software startup incubator based in northern Atlanta, and launched Startup Riot, a conference for startups. Sanjay was the founding CEO of Digital Envoy, which we'll talk about a little later in today's interview. But first, here is Sanjay reminiscing about his entrepreneurial roots, starting from junior high in Kentucky. Back then, I would uh, basically arbitrage candy bars, right? I would go to the convenience store, buy candy bars, and then sell them at lunch to kids whose parents would not give them candy bars. And, you know, you sell them for more than what you bought them for. And that's a very common story, it seems like, with a lot of entrepreneurs. Like if you ask a room full of entrepreneurs, 100 of them, I bet you more than 50 of them will say like, yeah, I did something either that exactly or something very similar to that. And I would splurge my earnings there on comic books, which a lot of them to this day I still have and have appreciated in value. Uh, not that I view that as an entrepreneurial endeavor. I, I view that as collecting or, and or hoarding. But uh, but that's where I got my start. Later on, after graduating from college, I went to Georgia Tech Electrical Engineering undergrad. I was working for a couple of years, and I came up with an idea in 99 to basically make the internet better. Uh, I had two websites. I had the FedEx and Ikea websites. And the first thing they do back then was ask you what country that you were in. And I thought that was the most idiotic thing right? Like when we go to the store, when you go to the convenience store to buy candy bars, you don't tell them that you're going to use dollars in English to transact business, right? Like you just kind of know based on where you're geographically located, right? Um, so why would we not do this on the internet too, right? So that night, uh, it was uh, March 17th, 99. I devised the way to solve this problem. And then the next day I went in and talked to a guy who was the lawyer for the company I was working at. We had been bouncing ideas back and forth. His reaction was like, look, it sounds like a good idea, but either it's impossible to do or somebody else has done it because it's too good of an idea. And we started talking to some folks and it was possible to do and nobody had done it. And so that started uh, the first company there. It was called Digital Envoy. It still exists. I quit my job in 2000 and became the first full-time employee of the company. My two co-founders, both from that previous company, joined me a few months later. We ended up raising a million and a half dollars at the end of 99, beginning of 2000. And then ended up raising $10.5 million in venture capital in July 2001. That company was sold in 2007 and uh, has kind of let me continue on this crazy entrepreneurial journey ever since then. I want to dive into those early days because I heard you were saying 99, 2000, 2001. Seemed like that was a time when there were a lot of things happening in the tech world. Yep. And I imagine like, there was a lot of money coming into technology, but not all those companies made it, but your company did. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, very lucky, very fortunate um, in terms of all that. It was a very different time and scale as it is now. It was kind of necessary to raise large amounts of money back then because you did not have access to the things that you do now, right? Like we think about 
um, you know, the infrastructure stuff that we have now. Like, you don't need to buy servers. You don't need to buy storage space. Uh, and I'll give you an example. After we raised that $10.5 million, we needed to buy a storage system. And so we started talking with one company and the price tag on the storage system we were talking to them about was a million dollars. So we just raised 10 and a half. We were talking about taking 10% of that to put into a storage system. Now we needed the storage system. And a storage system, tell us why we need the storage system. Yeah, so I mean, a, a large scale storage system to store, you know, like what you have in hard drives, but a bigger system to be resilient and make sure that if a hard drive fails, you don't lose your entire business, you know, that kind of thing to, to you know, duplicate data across. So we were about to sign this deal. We ended up finding another vendor that sold us the same exact system, essentially for a quarter of a million dollars. So $250,000 versus a million. That's a huge savings. That's great. But now when you look back at it, that was $250,000 for two terabytes worth of storage, right? Your laptop probably has close to two terabytes worth of storage now. <laughs> right. And and you bought it for a couple hundred bucks, not $250,000. So that's just to give you an idea of the difference in scale as to what was happening back then versus now. Now, you know, if you're storing large amounts of stuff, it doesn't even make sense to do any of this stuff. Just use the cloud and pay per month based on the amount of storage that you're taking. And you could do it for, you know, tens, if not hundreds of dollars or so versus the hundreds of thousands of dollars that we ended up spending. Right. So back then you really had to build the infrastructure versus now there's almost collaborations or tools that you can use to skip ahead a few steps and try something out. And I, it sounds like technology companies can be a little bit more nimble. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I can't tell you, Demona, how many times I was in our server room, you know, receiving equipment, a rack mountable computers, and then myself rack mounting them and sticking them in a rack and plugging them in and setting them up and, and doing all that stuff. And I, I was doing that because all the developers were working on code. And so their time was more valuable doing that. Like I'm just one of the founders of the company. So I might as well, you know, I got to do the things that keep the company going. Right. So that's sales, rack mounting computers, making sure the phone system's working. Like I did all that stuff that nobody else wanted to do or, or you know, me or my co-founders were, were going to do because that was our job. That was our responsibility. So it's a lot different now. And, and I think that's why you're seeing a lot of companies now and a lot of startups now that are able to start without having to raise much money, if, if not any money at all, right? Like we have the benefit of credits and things like that, that come from a lot of these infrastructure providers that let a single or a small team of developers launch an application, launch a project without having to outlay any cash. You know, other than their time, they can still get this going. I want to go back to the 10 and a half million, Sanjay, <laughs> because it sounds like a lot. I'm sure a lot of our listeners are like, okay, so now we've, we've committed a quarter million to, to storage system. But like, how long did realistically, with all of the other things that you had to set up, how long did that money last and how did you allocate it? What is that going towards? Yeah, so uh, so to be clear, we only raised a million and a half uh, by January of 2000. So we'd gotten going at that point, and we'd started getting revenue uh, later on that year, like March or so. And I'll tell you, the first deal that we had it was with a company called Advertising.com, which doesn't exist anymore. It was uh, sucked up into AOL. But that first deal we got when our technology wasn't even honestly that good. It was actually awful. 
and they shouldn't have used it at all. They shouldn't have been paying for it. I've talked to the founders about this. We're cool. But they didn't use it for many months, which was fine because it gave us the time to build that up and get us to that right point. But that first deal, we were getting paid enough to cover our monthly rent check for our office. I mean, that was like such a relief. It was like, man, the office expenses are covered at this point. So now we just got to keep building up. And we were in a good business. I'm a big fan now. And and I think I accidentally fell into this. I'm a big fan of recurring revenue businesses, right? If you're in a business that you can just build upon and, and build recurring revenue, as long as you have low churn, it's a great business to be in. And we were very fortunate that we were in a, a business that provided a stream of data that you had to keep up to date. And if you were relying on it to do business, then you really couldn't get rid of it, right? So our churn was single digit percentages annually. And when you're that low, that means that you really, you gotta actively mess up the business to goof it up, right? Like really every year, month after month, revenue is gonna keep going up. And so when we got to the point of raising that $10.5 million, we were doing pretty well. We were actually profitable uh, the month that we raised that money. And so that money actually, the way we allocated it was we ended up getting a new office but we didn't splurge. We actually bought a sub-sublease. So a company that had subleased from somebody else had gone out of business. And so we subleased from them. So we ended up paying less. We ended up taking, I think it was like 25,000 square feet. We paid less than we would have if we'd gotten the 10,000 square feet that we actually needed. And so it was a multi-year deal. And so we only paid for a portion of the space and then over time took, you know, paid for all the space. But when you amortized it over the entire life. It was, it was a cheap deal. So we were, we're big fans of looking for deals for ourselves so that our, our business can stay healthy. So some of the money went into that. The other part of the money, a major part of the money went into building out a sales team that we had never had. All sales were handled by me and one of the other co-founders. And we would actively just go out and reach out to folks and, and pitch. How was that for you? Because you you really were you'd studied technology, right? And you're <laughs> you had this idea and you were like, okay, I can build it, I can get a team around it. Wait, now I have to add this whole other piece of sales. I know I experienced that in my business. Like I yep. went to this business because I was good at this one thing, and suddenly there's this whole other sales piece that I'm not trained to do, but if I don't do it, I don't bring in money. Right, right. So I'll be honest, before I went to college, I was probably more of an introvert. And during college, I became more of an extrovert, right? So that that changed a little bit for me. I think that is probably one of the biggest superpowers for entrepreneurs. So even if like internally you're an introvert, you got to be an extrovert when you become an entrepreneur, at least in terms of business, right? Like you've got to be willing to walk into a room and talk to anybody. You've got to be willing to to go up and get to know people, right? And and not talk to anybody and be like just pushing your business on the, on other people, right? Like we've both been in parties where you can tell the people that are there just to sell things and nobody wants to be around those folks, right? So like I, I'm the kind of person I like to go to an event. I get to meet people and know people and understand what they're about and, and understand like what they're working on and what they care about and, and those kinds of things. Because I think if you can build those real relationships, that's when good things can happen to you as, as an entrepreneur. And I'll give you an example. One of my early customers was at a startup and I'd sold to him. And, you know, we treated him well. Like we never took the approach of we were trying to extract every penny out of one of our customers. We tried to do something that was fair to them and fair to us. And uh, this guy ended up going to another company and called me up and he needed our technology again. And then, you know, he moved on to another company. And by the third company, he called me up and said, look, Sanjay, you know, I've got to get this bid out to other people, but you know, I'm going with you because you're going to treat me right and take care of me. 
Uh, and, you know, obviously that would have been a green light to just charge him whatever I wanted to, but I, I wasn't going to do that. Um, we charged him fairly. And then he went on to a fourth company and a fifth company. And every one of those companies was a customer, right? So my kind of view is that I don't view sales as transactional. I, I view them as relationships with people. And, and by the way, that guy, uh, I don't do any business with him, but I was out in California a couple of years ago and we got together and had lunch. Not for anything. It's just uh, like, hey, I, I like you as a, as a human being, as a person, and, and we're going to hang out and just chit chat. And uh, there were a couple of things actually I could help him uh, out with that uh, I hooked him up with as well. And so, you know, I, I think that, you know, as an entrepreneur, you've got to figure out how you want to relate to people and how you want to do sales. I strongly believe in startups, uh, especially early stage startups, that everybody in the company is in sales. It doesn't matter what your title is, right? It's receptionist to developer to uh, janitor to whoever. Everybody in the company should be able to articulate what you do as a company, regardless of your job function, because you just never know when that person is going to be at a cocktail party or some kind of event, and they're going to meet somebody or run into somebody that could be a customer. And do you want them to be like, yeah, we do some software stuff. Or do you want them to be like, hey, we do this thing and this is why you would use it and this is why you would care, right? Yeah. I, I want that. That's a really good point. Um, and I I hadn't really thought of it in that way. I mean, I certainly talk about networking a lot in, and having, having had multiple lives in multiple industries. If you really look at relationship building and you don't necessarily know what the outcome of that relationship is going to be, but just that you're building the relationships for the future. And I love how you said, you know, there's something that you might even be able to help him with in the future. It really shifts the dynamic of the relationship and makes it so that you you both can support each other whichever direction things go. And in entrepreneurship, sometimes things go in different directions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I'm a big fan of, of helping first, right? Like anytime I meet somebody, I'm always looking for ways that I can connect them to somebody else or help them or, or whatever. And, and it's funny because a lot of people ask me like, well, how can I help you? And Honestly, a lot of times I'm like, I, I, don't, I don't know. Like, I don't, I, I've not really thought about it. Right. And you don't know in that moment, but it's like, I'm, that's yeah. not my purpose here. I'm just building a relationship. And then maybe in the future, there will be something that you can help me with. And even if not in the future, it's okay. Right. Like, you know, we're, we're here to help one another. And uh, if you never help me, that's okay. That's fine. Yeah. I hope everybody hears that because I wish more people would uh, adopt that philosophy. And you've done so many things since then. Now, Sanjay, is this correct? You have how many patents? How many U.S. patents do you hold? I think it's 12 right now. Um, that's that's how many it is right now. I've got. And that's just in the U.S. You have European patents. You have Canadian patents. You have Australia patents. So you're kind of you're a bit of an idea guy, I would say. Yeah. Well, so a lot of them come from that first startup, Digital Envoy. I think that's about 10 of them. Two of them are for a new startup that I'm working on now. Um, which is not Together Letters. I'm actually working on an, another startup as well that's around the kind of data and data protection space. Um, so I've got two issued for that and then another one that's that's pending for that. But yeah, it, it was uh, funny. I've kind of fallen into this because one of my co-founders for Digital Envoy was a lawyer, the lawyer that I mentioned before. And he felt strongly about us filing for patent protection early on. And I got to tell you, as an engineer, it was torture. Uh, it is absolute torture having to sit there and explain in excruciating detail what the technology does when part of you is just screaming like, I just want to code. I just want to build it. I just want to do it, right? And not describe it. 
Uh, but in retrospect, it was probably one of the best things that we did. Not that we ever sued anybody. And I don't think the company still has never sued anybody for infringing on those patents, but really it just builds up a moat to protect a company like that in case anything happens in the future. I bet you sent a mean cease and desist though. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I leave that to the lawyers to do. Well, it's a good reminder, though, that you do have to protect yourself and your IP, especially if you are an idea person and you're putting something out into the world that other people could say, oh, that's it starts kind of where you began this journey. Like if it's too good of an idea, somebody else has probably already done it. And you want to make sure that you're protecting whatever the unique product is that you've created. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, it is true. I, I talk about this a lot a lot as well, is that, look, there's there's 7 billion people on the planet. The chance that the idea that you had has not been had by somebody on the planet, it's very unlikely, right? And we see this a lot of times with entrepreneurs that are looking for advice from others. And the first thing they'll do is whip out an NDA. And like, I, I don't sign NDAs. Like, what's the benefit to me? I'm trying to help you. But then I'm going to put myself in legal jeopardy by signing an NDA for an idea that probably somebody else has already had. And then you could potentially come after me for that. Like, that's nonsensical, right? So if you're an entrepreneur that feels like um, your idea is so secret and that by telling somebody is going to ruin the idea or ruining the opportunity for you to uh, succeed at the idea, then it's probably not a good idea, right? Like just by telling somebody, you know, is not going to ruin it. That said, you should absolutely protect it with intellectual property and patents and trademark and all that kind of stuff. But I'm a big fan of telling people what you're working on in the hopes that they say like, oh, you know, that's already been done or it's not going to work because of this. Because I I don't know about you, but I've got a long list of ideas that I want to work on and more than I've got time on this planet left to accomplish. So the quicker somebody can tell me like that's a dumb idea uh, and why I can move on to the next thing, which might not be a dumb idea. Or they might say it's a great idea. They might, yeah. They might say, I want to invest in that. Or they might just add something to the conversation. There's also something, you know, coming from corporate media, there's also something to be said for, like, the more your idea is out there and people are like, oh, that's Sanjay's idea, right? The the harder it is for somebody to come into your space. So it's almost like we need to flip our thinking on keeping those ideas so close to the vest because we're so worried somebody's going to copy it when it's just like, just focus on doing it the best that you can do. Yeah. And and when you're looking for advice, honestly, like those people that you're likely talking to for advice, they have their own ideas that they're going to be working on, right? Like, I don't have time to work on your idea. Like, I'm not passionate about your idea. I'm passionate about my idea. But if you want some advice, I can talk to you for a little bit and be like, you know, think about X, Y, and Z, or maybe you should meet A, B, and C and, you know, further your idea. But like, man, I, I got no time for your ideas. Since you've had so many ideas, Sanjay, I want to also hear, it sounds like the way that we've told your story so far, everything has been pretty smooth sailing. You would come up with an idea, you would get funding, you hire a team, you have customers, you're off to the races. But I imagine somewhere in those last 20 or so years, you've had a couple of startups that didn't really get started. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, uh, definitely there there has been some stuff like that. Um, for a little while, I ran a test with a friend on a startup called Pizza Impulse. And the idea was we were going to partner with pizzerias and pre-make pizzas 
and send out a message. And if you were the first to respond to that message, like a mass SMS, that you would get a pizza delivered to your door in less than 10 minutes that you bought. Like we'd be like, hey, there's a cheese pizza available. First one to respond gets it and you get you know food delivered to your door. So we actually bought a couple of pizzas and did a trial at a couple of locations like these high rise uh, condos and apartments. And one time it worked out really well. And another time uh, somebody responded and then were expecting us to give them the pizza for free. And it's like, no, this is not like free pizza giveaway. This is you bought the pizza. And so, you know, logistically, it just didn't seem like this was going to be something that worked out. The guy that I was trying this out with uh, went forward and and tried to do it on his own. I, I kind of tapped out at that point. I was like, yeah, this is this is going to be a nightmare. And I tapped out. He He stuck with it for a while. And then I think he gave up as well. But there's been many, many stinkers like that over time. But I think even in those stinkers, you learn a lot, right? Like, right. I learned I don't want to be in pizza delivery ever. Like, that's not a thing for me, <laughs> for sure. What is the point for you in deciding if an idea is worth continuing to pursue or if it doesn't have a future? Do, do you have, like, any kind of a, a, like a rating scale or is it fully financially <laughs> driven? How do you decide? Yeah, I, I, for me, it's it's gut a lot of it, right? It's it's looking at what the customer feedback is and and how people are interacting with the product or service uh, to really tell you is there an actual need there. And then the then the other part of it is is like yeah, there might be a need there, but are they willing to pay for it, right? Um, there, there's a lot of problems out there that you can solve, but nobody wants to pay for them. But they'd be happy if you solved them. Uh, <laughs> and kind of hard to build a sustainable business when nobody wants to pay you for stuff. So, and then they don't also want, they don't want to see ads. So you can't generate revenue that way. So you're kind of between a rock and a hard place. Right. So it's like, I don't want to pay for it. I don't want to have you get paid for it in any way, but can you still please solve my problem? Like, yeah, that's, uh, that's not really going to work out in the long run for any of us. (laughs) You know what Dorothy said, follow the yellow brick road. If people are willing to pay for it, that will prove that you're on the right track. Here's what we learned from Sanjay today. 10 million sounds like a lot of money, and it is. But just remember that when you raise the big bucks, you will likely spend it much faster than it came in. Protect your intellectual property and file a patent, even if the process sounds like your worst nightmare. And it probably is, but you'll thank yourself later. Be who you need to be in the moment. Sales does require some extrovert energy because it's all about human relationships. If you love Sanjay Parekh as much as I do, make sure you check out his tech comedy podcast, Tech Talk Y'all, where he and his co-host dish about the latest updates in the tech industry. The I Make a Living podcast is brought to you by FreshBooks. Balancing your books, client relationships, and business isn't easy. FreshBooks gives you the info and time you need to focus on your big picture your business, team, and clients. Right now, you can go to freshbooks.com slash podcast and take advantage of an exclusive offer for our listeners. And while you're at it, check out all of the resources made available to you through our show notes. Our executive producer is Francisco Erzmendi. Editorial and content producer is Leo Shell Villanueva. Our audio engineer and composer is James Morris. And I am Demona Hoffman, your producer and host. Follow me at Demona Hoffman and FreshBooks at FreshBooks on all of the social platforms for more tips, tools, and resources because it's your business. We'll be back on Monday with another full interview. See you next week.